0: What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDSE. Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: From Brandeis University, welcome to Recall This Book, where we assemble scholars and writers from different disciplines to make sense of contemporary issues, problems, and events. Today, Elizabeth and I, hello, Elizabeth Ferry. Hello. Um, are delighted to speak with the brilliant Stanford English professor Mark McGurl. Hello, Mark good to be here. It's great to have you. Who's Everything and Less, the novel in the age of Amazon has just been published by Verso. So listen to us and then rush to your favorite bookstore to buy it. And if I say bricks and mortar bookstore with a poignant twang, you will (laughs) know immediately how to place me within Mark's delightfully subtle and far-ranging categorization of the various responses that we citizens, consumers, readers, and I should also say the texts of those citizens, consumers, and readers can have to our era of Amazonification. So in his previous um, influential and wonderful book, The Program Era, Mark made waves by offering a system-centric approach to fiction in the the post-war period in America, insisting that we look at the literal Uh, sites of production and also of accommodation for American fiction. Those hundreds of writing programs um, that created their own ecosystem for certain forms, certain generic tendencies within literary fiction. And actually saying that, Mark, reminds me that you and Elizabeth and I obviously share this time at Hopkins, which was a very, very early one of those programs, I think, just after World War II. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Programs, yep. yeah. So um, then he pivoted towards uh, the Amazon era with a hugely influential, and I really influential even by non-English professor standards, a 2017 article in MLQ, which was called "Everything and Less: Fiction in the Amazon Era." And now comes this 300-page book that is maybe an unpacking or a next step analysis from that argument. So, so Mark, I have a zillion notes about how I see your argument um, proceeding. And I should say, we also have some companion texts to go along with it in this conversation. We have two older novels that um, directly thematize and explore the world of bookselling in its earlier pre-virtual forms. And, all, and as always, we are gonna end, but with recallable books, the book that if you enjoy this conversation, you may also wanna dive into. But before all that, maybe I can ask you to just get the ball rolling by introducing or premising or otherwise presenting your argument about um, how you understand the Amazonification of the book business and the general state of the neoliberal internet economy. So small sure. to get you started.
0: <laughs> I think I can handle that. Okay. Um, well, uh, so the most basic link uh, between... Uh, the Amazonian literary sphere or, or ecology um, and neoliberalism uh, more broadly uh, is the concept of service uh, and the service economy. Uh, so something like 80% of workers uh, in the US uh, now work uh, in the service economy broadly defined um, <clears throat> as opposed to the good goods producing or agricultural economies. Um, And and as the crystallization of that reality, uh, Amazon uh, as a company has always defined itself by way of its obsession uh, with providing good service. Um, So it's no surprise then that its conception of the literary work uh, is something that uh, is as as, as something that provides reliable service to readers. Uh, For Amazon, the reader is a customer. Um, This being something like a total negation of the high modernist conception uh, of the artist and the artwork uh, as a product of of wholly autonomous labor. And one of the most important ways that literature is enabled uh, to provide good service to readers uh, is is by being organized into many distinct genres uh, that line up with many distinct taste profiles. Uh, so as I put it in the book, uh, for Amazon, all fiction is genre fiction, uh, including literary fiction, uh, which is simply another genre that some people really like. Those of us who are of a certain age will under- will know that Amazon started as a bookstore, um, uh, that that was its first product, uh, in- interestingly. Um, And now it's so much more than that. I mean, the the, the book part of Amazon is a tiny percentage of its overall business now, but I find that intriguing. I found that intriguing uh, from the get-go. And it raised the question whether there hasn't always been a kind of literary or quasi literary dimension um, to the whole enterprise, uh, an epic dimension to the enterprise. Uh, in, in, insofar as it was sort of motivated by its first product, uh, insofar as Jeff uh, and Mackenzie Bezos are both readers and she is a novelist, Um, you know, uh, so it sort of set my thinking along those lines. And then, as I'm sure, you know, uh, or, or, or had occasion to, 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 to ponder, I mean, books, are one of the first mass-produced commodities, right? Uh, one of the first machine-made things in multiples that get distributed. And so the book, in a way, has always had this uh, interesting relation uh, uh, to industrial modernity.
1: Yeah, so I definitely want to go back the way you have raised that. Um, you know, I'm. we have had wonderful conversations in the past with Martin Puchner and Leah Price about sort of book history and the the ways in which books are not just kind of representative and indicative, but in some ways kind of proleptic and causative agents at different cultural Mm -hmm. moments. So I definitely want to go back there. But can I just just hold with the point you made about like the bookshop identity of Amazon being at the the, the center of the concentric rings of its gradual pervasiveness to the economy? So are you, how strong a claim is that about elective affinity? In other words, is it that It had to be a bookshop doing that because books and genres gave you actually an important paradigm, which then, you know, predicted and made easier the success of Amazon, as it you know gave you different flavors of tapioca, different kinds of bicycle clamp, different kinds of cable. Those are just things I bought in the last week on Amazon. Uh, so is that, is that a strong elective affinity, or is it more like just contingent? I mean, books are one object among others. It happened to be a good point of insertion for this sort of retail. How, how would, strong an argument.
0: Yeah. yeah, I mean, I would aim for something sort of in between those two. Mm-hmm claims. I mean, the very strong claim just sounds to me a little bit fanciful. Um, that said, it wasn't purely arbitrary uh, either. I think that, you know, Bezos, by, by most accounts, was intrigued by this by the Internet uh, and thought it should be in the 90s and, and thought it should be used for, for a new kind of business. Um, and there's some evidence that he always was thinking about selling everything on the Internet. Uh, he just looked around uh, and saw that books that books have specific qualities that make them that made them very convenient to start with. Um, most importantly, there, there are so many more books that in existence than can possibly be housed in even a huge bookstore, right? Um, that uh, and then very importantly, books were already we all already had the ISBN number system. So that books mm. were rigorously trackable um, uh, in, in a way. So it had, and and then, and then add on to that, they're uh, relatively similar physical objects. Mm. They're relatively durable physical mm-hmm. objects. So they're not too delicate, right? So when you bring together all of these elements, um, books made a heck of a lot of sense uh, uh, as the sort of thing to begin with. There are also all these practices, intrinsic, to the way Amazon does business that are quite peculiar and quite literary seeming. So yeah. like no PowerPoints are allowed yeah. at, at Amazon. Yeah. You have to deliver your information in the form of a six page narrative that people can read before the meeting starts. So. A commitment to textual linearity and argumentation mm-hmm. over and against the sort of visual. So you could look at that yeah. for in, just for instance, yeah. uh, if you want to introduce a new product in Amazon. I don't know if this is still true, but it used to be true that you would present a futuristic press conference discussing the success of the product of the of, uh, of the product that you you know what I mean. So that there, it's, it's so you can start to look s- sort of see like literary elements being sort of built into the fabric of the way the corporation does business. And then just most overarchingly, to go back to your thing about the hero, clearly Bezos, and this has been true since he was high school valedictorian, talking about his dreams of us going to space. Uh, clearly, ha- it's not just that he's a science fiction guy. Uh, is, it's also an epic science fiction guy with a certain, a little bit of an old-fashioned conception of the hero. Uh, mm-hmm. uh of the hero that that will lead us where we need to go mm-hmm. as a people mm-hmm. uh, and i think that that um, I, and i think that amazon has always had that epic heroic dimension and
2: also reading as a kind of model for that right like reading as the way that you're going to transcend your specificity and travel yeah through.
0: yeah at least initially yeah yeah you read your way into the future So
1: I want to tilt this conversation towards something that I'm basically going to sit back and listen to you guys talk about methodology, because I, as Elizabeth, as an anthropologist, I I think you have some thoughts about the methodological, you know, the, the sort of divides around how one writes a book like this, Mark. But can I start that by saying I really admired and I would love to hear you say more about your notion that kind of buried within the genres that Succeed within the Amazon universe of you know self-publishing, but just book distribution more generally within those genres itself. You read basically a coded or implicit um, referentiality to the system itself. So I'm gonna drop. I'm gonna drop in on um a, because now I get to talk about something I've never talked about before: adult diaper baby <laughs> fiction. No, that's not what it's called. Adult <laughs> diaper porno fiction. What the hell is it?
0: What is it? Adult, it's adult baby diaper lover. Adult baby A-B-D- diaper lover. A B D L. Yeah. Okay.
1: A B D L. Yeah. Google it now. But um, yeah. and then except have a screen up when you Google it. Yeah. <laughs> so um
0: no, so, no, so for work.
1: If yes. I if I understand your argument, and this is what I want you to say more about, you're saying that in the kind of framework of adult baby diaper love lover. Lover. Is a notion of kind of like it it actually models the subservient, suckered, dependent
0: yes.
1: consumer of Amazon products, and yes. then the loving dominatrix, <laughs> exactly. giant
0: mammary exactly. of
1: Amazon. I guess yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I, <gasps> I mean, mean I-
1: <laughs> is that tongue in cheek? I couldn't tell. Is your analysis tongue in cheek, or is it? Do you think well, that? Yeah.
0: I I mean, well, okay. only tongue in cheek to the extent that there one could multiply, I think, possibilities for this sort of allegory of Amazon's own business. It's just that's a very particular, particularly direct and I admit kind of sort of funny one um, because so because it's an image of a formerly alpha heroic male who eroticizes being dominated by a mother figure, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and provided with everything he needs rather than having to uh, go out there and, and, and provide it for himself. You know, A mother that, who
1: looks a little like Jeff Bezos, in other
0: words. Yeah, basically, yeah. I mean, yeah. Um, yeah, so, so um, uh, I, I was just sort of interested in, in the erotica space in general because it's the most, it's the sort of wildest Uh, sort of affordance, to use that term, uh, of the Amazon system. Um, The thing's least likely to make it through any kind of like uh, ordinary literary gatekeeper. Um, But you can't keep the people from producing innumerable versions uh, and, and, and permutations of their kink out there. And this was just, and I was sort of interested in that as a general phenomenon. And then I stumbled upon this stuff. And I was like, wait a minute, that actually is uncanny, Um, how it, well, my first thought is, wow, this reverses Fifty Shades of Grey perfectly. It's a perfect inversion uh, of the model we're given by that super, super bestseller. Um, But also it really kind of gets at at least that element of Amazon uh, in its relation to us as dependent consumers who, you know, uh, uh, sit immobilized as stuff is delivered to us, basically. Mm
2: -hmm. And all of our needs are met before.
0: All of our needs are met. Yeah. Okay.
1: So, 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 so I'll just ask a tiny follow-up on that before the, the more, much more interesting question of like, you know, talking to people versus reading books. So is it, do you, do you feel like, is your insight that once you've understood this system, it's possible to go in and find, you know, the moments that resonate, the kind of fractals that embody the system as a whole, or is the argument a little more agential than that, that you see people kind of working out the logic of the system that they are operating within by way of the stories they are telling?
0: Oh, well, God, probably not consciously. Okay. Um, No. Um, That seems far-fetched. Yeah. Um, Spontaneously reproducing the way we all do. Yeah, uh, we all we're all spontaneous reproducers of ideologies and ideologemes, and I think that that's what one is discovering uh, yeah. uh, in, in this space. I, I have not been able to stop my own methodological commitments from being accretive, right? Uh-huh. So that sort of multiplicity of of approaches that you sense there, p- partly that's uh, uh, an artifact of the uh, 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 of my having wanting to sort of like add up all of the things you can do to, to sort of read literary history rather than sort mm-hmm. of purify them in favor of one uh, direction mm-hmm. uh, or, or another. Um, so that's, and then, and then, I mean, a more positive account would be that because of s- certain kinds of theoretical models that fascinate me, complexity models where, you, where you're sort of taught to think about things at different scales uh, right. The way they relate to each other, the way the way the the, the way the world is sometimes fractal in the sense that it's scale free. That's some that something really is a perfect miniature of something right. larger. Right. But then uh, in the social, that's not always the case. Sometimes mm-hmm. so, sometimes differences in scale uh, produce real differences. Um, differences in quantity produce differences in in, uh, in, in quality. And so, you know, it's like a, a, a group of five people is not just a miniature version of a million people.
1: Right. And that's um, why our desire to have Jacinda Arden as President of the United States is probably <laughs> not going to work out very well.
0: Right. That, much yeah, as that I would want
1: be... the world to be New Zealand, it's not going <laughs> to
0: be. So. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so in, in a lot of ways, the, what I'm doing in this book and also my previous couple books also i think to some degree uh is manifesting that fact of trying to perform multi-scalar analyses of things right Uh, yeah
2: i mean i i I read it as sort of like and the term fractal is also coming up in my brain right but in this sort of like like let us posit this as an example of that yeah or let us posit this as caused by that or sort of as a, in you know, a synagogic relationship of yeah. that, right? And sort of, but I like your word accredited because it definitely, you know, it feels like this sort of like from this angle and then yeah. from this angle and-
0: yeah. yeah, well, I mean, that goes back to the very initial gesture of the book, which mm-hmm. wants the reader, you know, to get interested in Amazon as a literary historical phenomenon mm-hmm. um, and goes with that, you know what I mean? Uh, for 200 plus pages, right? But which never, at least I'd like to think, never tries to pretend that there's something exclusive about this context yeah. that, you know what I mean? It was re- it's really like, it, it, I, 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 I think in terms like in, uh, of it being a big thought experiment. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's put Amazon at the center of things. Mm-hmm. And then what follows from that as an, as an interpretive lens? Yeah. Without ever sort of, it, it's so implausible to sort of say that there are not other profoundly important um, sort of ways to look at uh, 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 ways to look at contemporary con- contemporary literary culture there, there obviously are. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it, it, it's, you know, it's for it tries to be forthrightly constructivist in that sense. Mm-hmm. It's like, y- yes, I mean, I do want to claim that, you know, it's, it's, it's not crazy to say that Amazon is the most interesting, thing that's happened materially to literary history in the past 20 years uh-huh. um, the gauntlet i throw down in, in in the book is to say can you can you point to something that's happened inside a novel since 2007 that is as consequential as the uh, arrival of the kindle in 2007.
1: Um, So that sounds like a great time um, to loop back to our historical context, and I think each of you guys chose a book that looks at the book trade at an earlier moment, and I don't know, Mark, since yours historically is a little bit earlier, do you want to start off with uh, the Morley
0: book? Sure. Well, there's this book. Um, First, I want to give a sort of shout out to a graduate student in my department named Jessica Jordan, who's working on this genre, which books about books, which turns out to be much larger than you might have imagined. Mm. Um, I knew about this book from researching my first book, which is about the turn of the century, um, literary professionalism, but she reminded me of it, uh, working with her. So, but it's called uh, Parnassus on Wheels. Uh, It's by Christopher Morley. And um, it's just kind of, it, it, I won't, I'm not going to make a case for it as a great novel. In some ways it's quite slight, um, but, but pretty entertaining and, 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 um, sort of drops you in. And I think that, I, uh, I think that our next novel does the same sort of drops you into a moment of true book oriented literary idealism. Um, the idea, uh, so the, 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 the plot is that a, a woman is living with her older brother on a farm. Um, and then he happens to become, weirdly becomes a famous writer by writing essays on the joys of living on a farm. Um, and she's you know happy for him, but she's really, really bored. And then she gets this opportunity to buy a mobile book wagon, um, a little mobile bookstore. Uh, which she then uh, rides around the countryside. And then the, the substance of the novel are the adventure, are the picaresque adventure she has uh, as a bookseller, as a bookseller woman. Uh, this is another sort of through line um, that we could look at. Uh, so finds her way into the book, book business in this way. Um, and uh, it's an opportunity for her, but it always goes hand in hand with the sort of opportunities to bring enlightenment uh, to the countryside of America. Um, it's sort of an interesting sort of moment um, in, uh, in, you know, a representation of bookselling as, you know, it's pre-Amazonian in the sense that books are being brought to you. So mm-hmm. it has that delivery of books aspect. Um, on the other hand, they're being delivered by horse and wagon. Um, so uh, So it's a little bit different, but nonetheless has this, you know, deep, Humanist enlightenment faith. Actually, I Mark,
1: can I ask you more in terms of the humanist enlightenment? Can I pick up a, a really awesome point you made that I didn't want to get lost, which had to do with the ISBN number system? And uh-huh. I guess it's the way I'm going to frame it, Elizabeth. You might have a different way in. Is that is to think about historically the different models we have for commodities? And you know, I wrote a book about portable property, in which yeah. the default commodity, oh, right, of course, yes, was, <laughs> yeah, not in which I did think about books as commodities, but I thought about fungibility. And obviously if you're selling flour, there's not a lot of, I I never really thought about this with Amazon, but there's no real advantage to my buying flour from like somebody who's got a thousand warehouses because you don't need 9 million ISBN numbers for flour. You just need flour. And books are particularized commodities. So in other words, that doesn't make them not commodities but an aspect of their commodification is that each one has its particularity. Like that's what yeah. makes invaluable as commodities. Do you, yep. you want to
0: say more about that? Yeah, no, I mean, it's just an interesting fact about, about the book as commodity. In a sense, there's a radical similarity of one book to another physically. I mean, for all, I mean, you know, there's obviously there's variety in the physical shape of books, but like... <laughs> You know, there's also a radical similarity of the codex form from one, you know, uh, um, from one version to another. Um, And then any given title, of course, all of those books, at least in the same edition, will be completely similar. Right. But then books, uh, the book market as a whole is characterized by, you know, being occupied by, I don't know, what, five million different Things.
1: There's something um, specifically, I don't know, humanized about the commodity because the commodity yes. is a book, you know, yes. that it has this special je ne sais quoi because every yeah. book is different from every other in a way yeah. that somebody no, self- absolutely. doesn't and have that.
0: Sure. And as you can learn from Laura Miller and other historians of the book trade, yeah, it's remarkable t- how, how long a kind of pride in it being a bad business lasted. Yeah, uh, I really took the beginnings of corporatization in the '60s and '70s and '80s uh, for that mentality to sort of drain away. Um, yeah. it was a, I mean, the 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 sort of New York City version of it was that it was a gentlemanly business. Yeah, right. Um, very much removed from the rough and tumble of uh, of other sectors of the market uh, because imbued with this seriousness of purpose, um, and that, and 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 the sort of you know, backcountry version of that is reflected in the Morley novel.
1: Yeah, that's great. So, Elizabeth, do you want to connect that to Penelope Fitzgerald? Yeah,
2: and I was just going to say that. Um, I mean, that that sort of idea of book selling as a as a terrible business is related to the notion that it's sort of an anti-market. Yes. You know, it's it's sort of a sphere that is supposed to be free from the market, right? Right. And therefore. Um, which also relates to this question, I mean, a lot of the commodities that we think of as being these sort of commodities that are based on distinctiveness rather than similarity or fungibility also yeah. kind of play with that idea, right? Mm. That sort of yep. notion that they're, um, you know, a work of art or whatever that's like yep. somehow not against the market. So anyways, um, yeah, so I mean, I not not a few things of what you said about the morally could be described about the bookshop um yep. and it's you know a sort of you know a lady bookseller who's kind of going into this sort of hostile environment it's not sort of traveling in you know mobilely by by uh, mobile bookshop but it's sort of in this you know english kind of small town and um, we had a discussion o- offline about kind of um, what our whether we thought it was one of the better Fitzgerald's uh, books, <laughs> um, and I I don't think it is, but I do like it a lot, and I I like its kind of like it's it's non triumphal quality. Right? Yes, like it is not about conquering the minds of rural Britain right. in order to get them to appreciate her. You know, dictuitiveness or whatever, right? She uh, loses,
0: right? She loses. Like, yeah, it's, it's all totally. a big failure. Yeah. <laughs>
2: um, and uh, um, and that's that seems very Fitzgeraldy in a way. It's kind of like yeah. very, um, sort of, uh, you know, humorously unforgiving. Um, okay. As a
1: massive fan of Fitzgerald, can I just put a plug in here that it's 1978, I think it's her second novel. And in 1977, she published her book, The Knox Brothers, do you guys know that it which no. is like the portrait of her four great uncles, I suppose. And one of them was the editor of Punch. So I actually think there's an older literary historical tradition that she's part of, like, in other words, she is very much in the family business of, yeah. you know, buying newsprint at two cents a pound and selling Uh it at five cents a pound. I mean, like she's thought about different modes of dissemination. And of course she has this wonderful book about the BBC, human voices, Voices. which is again about medium specificity.
0: Yeah. 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 Uh, Another possibly important detail is that is that the bookshop is a historical novel. I mean, Uh not at great distance. It takes place in the late fifties, but it's a 78 novel. And, and so that, so, the book is a is one is very charmingly a book about fail, about fail, a failed project of enlightenment yeah. of yeah. of the small town, um, but but that sort of success might be added in as it were historically from seventy eight as a cl- clearly much more liberalized moment. Mm-hmm. Right, um, looking right. back on this that, looking back on that Lolia, conservative right? um,
2: yeah. about the book Lolita trying to sell the book
1: Lolita. Yeah, so yeah. can I turn back, Elizabeth? You made a really good point about the kind of not unsalable commodities, but commodities that are saleable precisely because they mark their distinction from mere commodification. Is there something to be said about the aura or the kind of metonymical association of like cool prestige objects that get sold in a bookstore? And so, Mark, I'm sort of thinking about Amazon here, like opening out from its beginnings as a yeah. bookstore to so much more. But also, Elizabeth, just your, your comment made me think about all those, you know, hipster t-shirts that I have bought for $28 at a bookstore or the like cool <laughs> Canadian bacon chocolate bar. That Do you know what I mean? Like there's like a whole set of items, which I've heard in some bookstores are like the main seller, you know, a little
2: meditation manual that you totally. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Yeah. But forget the manual, you know, like the little mindfulness token that you can buy at the, you know, which is, so what is it about those things? Because they are erraticized by being in a bookshop. And and Mark, it's so great that you name-checked our colleague Laura Miller at Brandeis because oh. I actually don't really know her work on this. I knew that she worked on it, but it. I'm going to go check it out. Well, now.
0: I mean, the, the book of hers I've read most yeah. recently is Reluctant Capitalists, yeah. so, which makes the argument right there.
1: That's oh. great. I mean, I'm so sorry we didn't have her in this conversation. That would be great. Um, it's, it's a, see how wonderful. It's a great, it's a, yeah. She,
0: um, and you just wicked smart, really good book. <laughs> yeah. Just
1: taught
2: me the
1: word erraticized. Erraticized? thank you. <laughs> like our our role and, and our role. <laughs> um, yeah, um, it's things that make you do fun things with your mouth. Yeah, but um, but but yeah, but that notion, right? Reluctant capital. That's a great way of thinking about it. So yeah, Mark. I mean, do you have thoughts about that? Historical, yeah I mean, that I, genealogy I, of the book trade.
0: Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think that to some degree Amazon disconnects from that. Um, just, it just at, least, yeah, at least in the sense that I mean, except insofar as it's opening physical bookstores of its own, um, it, it's disconnected from that and that well, that that feature of of especially, well, no, not just independent bookstores, all bookstores have lots of tchotchkes yeah. Um, that are that are marketed to the people who go into bookstores. So there's yeah. a kind of a <laughs> there's kind of a class profiling going on um, in, in, in that stuff to some degree. Um, but that also maybe has something to do with profit margins, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, as you say. Amazon's a little bit different in that because it's a at least the online part is virtualized, you don't get that kind of associative, Uh, Certainly not that you're not you're not representing yourself and behaving visibly as a certain kind of person with a certain kind of taste profile. Uh Um, So I think Amazon's a little bit more of the massified version of that, Mm -hmm. although for sure. I mean, the funny thing about it is that it just expands the number of commodities that you might buy at the same time that you Um buy a book.
2: It presumably has algorithms that are then, you know,
1: pushing yeah. up certain things based on Yeah. About, right? Yeah. Does So does either of you know much about the history of uh, the kind of culture wars around public libraries in America, Mark? I feel like that might be something that's kind of in your bailiwick. No, but I mean, just the thing I was thinking about is, you know, with the rise of the Carnegie system, it you know, around 1900, more or less, and then the professional librarians that Melville Dewey trained, um, you get that question of whether the library is going to be a space of massification or a space of cultural prestige, you know, because there was lots of, oh yeah, I'm going to call it, yeah, good popular literature that in a library pre Carnegie, the library could just hold that stuff. So in a way, historically, the arrow goes the other way, that 19th century libraries were not ashamed to have the things that people wanted to read. But then the library became a, prestigious okay erraticized space and then you had to not have 10 copies of the latest quote trash instead you had to have you know harry beecher stowe and herman melville and all those other folks so
0: yeah i I, yeah i don't i don't personally know that history well enough to to comment on it i mean i I, because i'm obsessed with what i am obsessed by there's the question of Ebooks and the library. Yeah, um, just to go to a highly specific, highly contemporary uh-huh. Uh-huh. debate being had about whether you can take out an ebook and what the property status uh-huh. uh, 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 of those are going to be at libraries, because not because yeah. that is one way to acquire an ebook is to get it from a library.
1: So I actually think this is a good moment for us to turn to the question of recallable books. So yeah. as loyal listeners know these are books that if you enjoy the conversation today and who would not um these are other books you might want to look at that kind of fall into the same uh bailiwick so um mark as you as our guest um i'll turn to you first and ask if you have uh, one to suggest
0: sure my, my recallable book is relatively recent in that it's 40 years old mm. um and it's a book by walter tevis uh, who also, uh, wrote Queen's Gambit, Queen's Gambit. which was just made yeah. into a, yeah. he also wrote, uh, The Man Who Fell to Earth.
1: Love that book, um, yeah.
0: So a really sort of super interesting science fiction-ish writer. Yeah. But the book I wanted to point at, um, and it, it's a truly interesting book, um, uh, really, really worth reading, and it's called Mockingbird, um, and it's a, it's a post-apocalyptic novel. It came out in, I think, 1980, um, And in this post-apocalyptic future, it's an illiterate future. and um, books re-enter the world in a very, very fascinating, fascinating way in this novel. And it, f- despite its sort of dystopian vibe, which is sort of continuous with Fahrenheit 451, mm-hmm. the Ray Bradbury sort of mm-hmm. dystopia, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, anti-literary dystopia that people are living in, um, it's 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 in, a, it's in a it's in that sort of sub tradition of the books about books. Mm-hmm. Um, um, but it's but it's a really fascinating novel. It's got a small cast of characters. It's very inflected by existentialism. Mm. One of the main characters uh, is a, 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 a humanoid robot um, who, for reasons that are like they ask why this is true, but he's embodied as an African-American. Guy and he's the new Dean of, of NYU. So uh-huh. there are all sorts of, uh, and, he, and he's immortal and this is a problem for him. This is the existentialist thing, cause he's a robot. Um, and, um, and then there's the two other main characters and one of them is they, they both rediscover books and what books mean. Uh, yeah. And that makes it sound a little way more corny than the book actually yeah. is. Uh, it's an amazingly well-executed uh, uh, novel, and anyone who's interested in this kind of thing, I strongly recommend it.
1: Okay, that's great. Thanks, Mark. And thanks for mentioning Fahrenheit 451 in passing. That's a, obviously a, yeah. a great one to think about. In fact, Bradbury in general, I feel like um, from the Illustrated Man on yep. and Martian Chronicles, he does have this kind of love-hate relationship with the notion of a kind of prestige cultural canon embodied in books. Yep. You know, Even Edgar Allan Poe keeps coming back in Bradbury, yep. so it's a good way of thinking about it. Yeah. Um, and uh, so I will um, also, um, I'll go way back and I'm going to use, I'm going to do what Elizabeth usually does, which is recommend a Trollope novel, and it's <laughs> The Wharton, which is, you know, a great Trollope novel in and of itself, but it's also his first novel and it's really interesting because he's definitely still feeling his oats and feeling his way generically into how he identifies the kind of work that he does. So Mark, one of the reasons I asked you the question about adult baby diaper, no, adult, no. Tell me again, adults.
0: A B D L. A B adult 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 baby diaper lover.
1: Fiction, is I was interested in that level of generic consciousness. And in The Warden, the generic consciousness is very high. So he situates the novel in opposition to a newspaper called the Jupiter, which is the bad version of the Times of London. But he also trots out Thomas Carlyle as Dr. Pessimus Anticant, um, who is another example of how not to write fiction. And then he also invokes Mr. Popular Sentiment, who is Charles Dickens, who is another example of how not to do it. So he's locating himself within the triangle of you know, bad other iterations of what oh, a realist novel might be. So it, it's, I think it's, it's a good one to think with.
2: Most of which are on the grounds of um, sort of catering too much to the public, right? Uh,
1: yes and no. Actually, I think that I think his, his critique of the Jupiter is that it treats itself like a God. Like it is right. it is lowest common denominator, it's true, yeah. but it also establishes a prestigious distance above its audience. Whereas mm-hmm. he's saying his kind of novel lives at the same level as shaping, you were,
2: It's shaping popular opinion. It's, 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 it's is It's sort it's exactly. like of like you know. of,
1: Yeah, and pessimist anti Kant is like, you guys are all doomed anyway. So it's not so much a God as it is like Lucifer or something, just right. like, yeah. I forsake you. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and somehow Trollope is the only one who gets to be with you, but nonetheless preserve, I don't know, some sort of prestigious intellectual detachment at the same time. Right. Right which Mr. Popular Sentiment gives up. The
2: center of honor or something.
1: Yeah, something like that, that's right, yeah. Anyway, um, cool, well, thank you, Mark. This has been an awesome conversation. We really appreciate your coming and taking the time.
0: It's been really fun, really, really fun.
1: So let me just say quickly that recall, this book is sponsored by Brandeis and the Mandel Humanities Center. Sound editing is by Naomi Cohen, website design and social media by Miranda Puri of the English department. Um, And Elizabeth and I are very eager to hear your um, comments, criticisms and thoughts on today's discussion and on the book trade generally. If you enjoyed today's episode, you'll likely enjoy, I think our earlier related conversations with Martin Puchner, that's um, RTB6. And with Leah Price, RTB46 about the tangled history of books as objects, as media, and as as scalable commodities. So I think our discussion about scale really will resonate for us. Um, Please write a review uh, and uh, rate us on um, Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or Spotify, wherever you get your podcast. So from all of us here at RTB, thanks for listening.